scripture reading will be from the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, if you were using a pew Bible uh, in front of you, it would be on page 966. Anyway, by the way, did all the pew Bible, did anyone see holes in your pew in front of you? Was missing a Bible? Good. Make sure we got everything back in order here this week. Thank you for your patience with that. Uh, Lord willing, here in the near future, we'll get the steps uh, uh, carpeted as well. That was just running behind schedule. So 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we'll look at verses 1 through 13 this morning. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, as we meditate on what you have written to us, that we might know you, that we might know how we should change through the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray, Lord, that you would widen our hearts to receive your word, to be changed by your word. Please use Pastor Toby now as he is, teaches us from your word, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before we launch in, I do want to say thank you. Thank you to um, the deacons in particular who have worked behind scenes to, uh, to get Bibles out, to put Bibles back. I want to thank in particular Doug Waltz. Doug, thank you for leading the charge on getting all of this done. I mean, Doug is a doer. He is a doer. You just say, this is kind of what we need, and he's like, you got to hold him back, or else he's just going to get it done before you get done with your sentence. And, uh, and so... Praise the Lord for that. Thank you, Doug, you have, and uh, all the deacons who have worked together in um, getting us to this point and will carry us through past the finish line. Thank you. Um, thank you. Can we just thank the deacons for doing for that? Amen. It's good to say thank you. It's good to be thankful. I wonder, as we come to our text this morning, I wonder how you'd answer this question. I wonder how important it is to you to live in right relationships with other people. I wonder when problems enter a relationship, are you more likely to hold a grudge? Or are you more likely to pursue reconciliation? Is it a priority for you to resolve conflict with your spouse, with your friends, with your child, with your parents, especially if they're Christians and you're a Christian? I wonder this morning if you'd be surprised if I told you that your relationship with God and your relationship with other people are intimately connected to one another. You remember Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, 
First and greatest commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he says the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says if you come to worship, you're about to present your offering, and you realize that you are at odds with somebody else. He says don't go forward with the worship service and eat your lunch and watch the Colts and figure it out later. He says put everything down and go make it right. Why? Because our relationship with God and our relationship with other people are intimately connected. Jesus even dares to say, if you don't forgive men their sins, your heavenly Father will not forgive yours. Keep your finger there and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. I want to show you this before we launch into our text in 2 Corinthians. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, this is what Paul writes there. In Him, that is, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. So, in other words, in the death of Jesus, we have been bought out of slavery to sin and set free in Christ. We've been redeemed. Our sin is no longer held against us. We still have sinned, but our sin, the charges have been dropped. But even more than that, the charges have been fully paid for in the death of Jesus. Jesus has been charged with things He never committed, and He was punished with the death penalty for things He never committed, and we, in exchange, are off the hook. And that paves the way... For what Paul says in 2 Corinthians is reconciliation with God. It's what it looks like. Our sin is not counted against us. But then Paul goes on. That's not the only thing Paul says about the death of Jesus in the book of Ephesians. If you go to chapter 2, you'll see in verse 12, he's talking particularly to the Gentiles are out there who are out there in Ephesus. He says, remember that, this is chapter 2, verse 12 and following, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. In other words, you weren't just separated from God, you're separated from God's people. This This is a doubly bad situation you were in, in other words. But... Verse 13, what a great word in the Bible. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Well, what do you mean, Paul? Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. In other words, the very same death of Jesus, the very same cross of Jesus, the very same sacrifice, not only did it atone for our sin and bring us into right relationship with God, Paul says it has torn down every human wall of hostility so that we are at peace with one another. There's no greater distance than Jew to Gentile in that world. And he says in Christ, there's nothing keeping you from living as one. Nothing. In other words, Ephesians, your relationship with God and your relationship with other people are intimately connected. Now, last week was all about the reconciliation with God. Back in 2 Corinthians, Paul says in verse 18, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself. This is what God has done in Jesus Christ. The world is in rebellion against God. The world is at odds with God. We were at odds with God from birth, dead set on going our own way, doing our own thing, not listening to anything God has to say. But in Jesus Christ, enemies become more than friends, don't they? 
Enemies become children. What an awesome blessing of the gospel. Your grandma is united with her heavenly father and her elder brother Jesus. That's good news this morning. And then he goes on from there. He doesn't stop. I mean, he tells us what reconciliation, what it took to reconcile us. In chapter 5, verse 21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, all of our sin was laid on Jesus Christ even though he didn't commit any of it. He paid for it. And all of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ is credited to our account though we didn't earn it. And so we stand before God right when we trust in Jesus. That's where we left last week. You remember that? And Paul goes on here this week to move from the reconciliation with God to make this statement to the Corinthians. He says, we've opened our hearts to you. We love you. We are in relationship with you. And then he says, widen your hearts also. Now, why does he do this? Well, in part because your relationship with God and your relationship with other people are intimately connected. But you remember Paul's been there in Corinth. He helped establish the church. He was there over 18 months preaching and teaching and persuading people to follow Jesus. And uh, since his departure, some other folks have come in. Some so-called super apostles have come in. Hot shots. They got, they got clever rhetoric, and they're great at speaking in public, and they know how to gather a crowd. And they have got the ear of the Corinthians. The problem in Paul's... And so part of what Paul's doing in 2 Corinthians is trying to reestablish right relationship with the Corinthians, saying, hey, I am the apostle of the Lord. We, you need to listen to what I say because I speak on behalf of God. But he doesn't do that for his own sake. Do you remember in Philippians chapter 1? There's some folks going around preaching the gospel, but they don't have the best motives. There's some who preach it out of love, Paul says, and there's some who just want to give me a hard time by preaching the gospel and doing their own thing. And then he says, basically, okay, this is my translation, who cares? The gospel's being preached, so that's what matters most of all. But here, see, there's something different going on. In chapter 11, he says this, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Basically, all they're interested in is a good show. They're not so concerned about the fact that these people are not preaching the same gospel that Paul is preaching. Do you know that people go from one church to another even today for the same exact reasons? Yes, yes, yes. I mean, I sat in Subway nine years ago. I sat in Subway with a couple who had been here and they left. And I sat with, we just providentially ran into them and I was talking with them. And where they were going to church, I asked them about the doctrine because I, believe I, I believed I knew about the doctrine of this church. And so I asked, I said, well, but they teach this and they teach this and that's, that's not what the Bible says. That's not what you've actually believed for many years. Yeah, but it's where we really feel like we fit in. It's the kind of church we want to be in. Friends, this kind of thing has not stopped in the first, with the first century. It is rampant. People walk into a building like this and they have their shopping list. And can I pick up everything in, that, I, that I feel I need in one stop? Susan just interacted with a couple recently who uh, was looking for a church that their five-year-old would be interested in. We're really looking for a church that our five-year-old would be engaged in. 
Well, veggie tales it is. So this thing hasn't ended. And Paul's not interested in building his own crowd. He's not interested in his own esteem. He's not interested in building a following. He's interested in people believing, preaching, and living according to the gospel. And so while he's trying to win them back, it's not for his own sake. He wants them to widen their hearts because widening their hearts to him will be widening their hearts to the very gospel he first brought them to. Come back, he's saying. Come back. Come back to the gospel. Come back to me who preaches the, right, the true gospel. In the second half of chapter 6, by the way, he's basically going to say, you need to cut out associating with those other folk. You can't be unequally yoked with people like that. It's not a section on business or on dating. It's, I mean, it's primarily the fact that you cannot be yoked with unbelievers who are, there, who are unbelievers because they're preaching the wrong gospel. So there is, this is a particular situation with Paul and this church. And we don't have apostles, we're not going to have an apostle show up next week and say, hey, how are you guys with me? This is not going to happen. But there is a general principle here. The idea being this, that reconciliation with God should lead us to reconciliation with God's people. Reconciliation with God should lead us to reconciliation with God's people. So Paul basically says three things through this text. The first thing he says is receive God's grace. And this is the thing we will spend the most time on. Receive God's grace. So Paul's carrying on from chapter 5. In chapter 5, verse 20, he says that God's making his appeal through him. And now here at the beginning of chapter 6, he says working together with him. It's a word of cooperation that we're on the same page. We're doing the same project. And so he appeals, don't receive the grace of God in vain. That's the negative, positively stated, receive the grace of God as it is, in full. The next verse, he says, why? For, because, he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 49, verse 8, a, 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 a section in which Isaiah is speaking about the salvation that is to come through the servant of the Lord, who is Jesus. And Paul is saying, that's not just some message back there. I am standing in the same stream of revelation from God that Isaiah did 700 years ago. That I am saying the same thing except the difference is he was saying it's coming and I'm saying it's here. The grace of God, the favorable time, it is now. Now is the time. Now is the day of salvation. Isaiah proclaimed a promise and Jesus has kept it. He has died for our sins. He has been raised from the dead and defeated death. And He saves every single person who trusts in Him. Every single person. That's what Isaiah promised and that's what Jesus secured and that's what Paul preaches. He says now is the day, now is the time. The word time there isn't like what time is it now and when are we going to get to lunch? It's like this is the time of. It was, it's like Dickens. It was, the worst, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. That's the kind of time he's speaking of. This is the era. The time of salvation is now. And if you are not trusting in Jesus this morning, that time of salvation is now. In Hebrews chapter 3, the Bible says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Don't turn away again. Don't calcify your heart toward Christ. 
I mean, that news is for everyone. And today, right where you are, if you will turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ, if you will call on the Lord to forgive you, He will hear you. In the time, favorable time, He will hear you. He will save you now. And if that's you, you want to talk more about what that means, who Jesus is, and what the gospel is, I would love to spend time with you after this service. Any Christian part of this church would love to spend time with you after this service talking about who Jesus is. Just ask any of us. So what does Paul mean then when he says to not receive the grace of God in vain? He's talking about the fact that he stands in the stream of Isaiah, that the salvation he preaches is the salvation God has promised. But why does he say it this way? Well, the wrong way to think about this is to think that you can receive God's grace now and go along, but one day you can do something so awful that you will forfeit God's grace. That somehow you can receive it now fully and lose it later. That's a wrong way to think about this. Now, there are a couple of other things that people have suggested. One is that people tend to... uh, think that Paul is aiming at unbelievers who still may be sprinkled into the Corinthian church. One says Paul's aiming at believers. But what does he mean by in vain? Receive the grace of God in vain. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. My Paul uh, was a woodworker, not by trade, but he could, he could walk into a store and see a piece of furniture and write nothing down and go home and build it. He just had that capacity about him. Now, I have built some things, and I'm interested in woodworking, but I, quite frankly, I don't have the tools to do it. So I want you to imagine, this is not a hint, Susan, but I want you to imagine that Susan, for Christmas, buys me some tool to begin woodworking. She buys me a router or she buys me some other, I don't even know what all the tools are called, so I do know what a router is, so we'll stick with that. She buys me a router for Christmas and I think, oh, this is wonderful. This is wonderful. I'll finally get to it. Six months on, the router's still in the box. The next Christmas comes around the router has successfully moved from the box to a cabinet in the garage. I turned it on once just to see if I could use it, but I probably could, but, you know, life is so busy and things are so hectic. I just don't have, I, I don't have time. Do you know what's happened? I received her gift in vain. It didn't get to its desired end. I didn't do with it what you're supposed to do with it. It didn't produce what it was supposed to produce. And so what Paul is saying is don't receive the grace of God that way. So if Paul is talking to unbelievers, I'm not convinced he is, but if he's talking to unbelievers, he would be essentially saying Hear the gospel, that that receiving the grace of God in vain is hearing it and never believing. Hearing it and never believing. I mean, statistics tell us that many children who grow up in church, many teenagers who grow up in church, hearing the gospel preached over and over and over and over again, walk away. They have heard and in some sense received it because they know how to talk the talk. They, they picked up the lingo. They know the Bible stories. They, can, they could probably share the gospel with somebody else at their school, but it never has penetrated their heart. So there's only a sense in which they've received it. This is a very dangerous place to be, brothers and sisters. I remember sitting with a friend just a few months ago saying basically if you keep doing this if you keep hearing the gospel and you keep saying no to Jesus there will come a day when your heart is so hard you never will be warned and this last week he came to Jesus 
That's good news. But it's not just about kids, is it? It's not just about kids. I mean, don't you, don't, haven't you heard people maybe in their 60s or 70s whose adult children are nowhere near the faith, and they say something like, we didn't teach them that way. That's not what we taught them to think and to believe. And yet, vain. I'm not sure that's it, but that is something that happens, isn't it? If Paul is talking to believers, which I think he is, he calls them saints after all, it could be that he's saying, don't fail to grow in godliness. Don't receive the grace of God in vain, meaning that grace does more than just make us right with God, that grace moves us toward godliness. So something like Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. In other words, the grace of God is more than a guarantee of heaven. The grace of God just doesn't come along at the point of conversion and say, all right, you're in, I'll see you there, and then walk away. The grace of God is like a really diligent nutritionist and personal trainer, all right? Comes along and says, I mean, like moves into your house and says, no, 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 you cannot eat that. You can, how many carbs does that have? You cannot do that. You, cannot, you need to eat this other stuff that you hate. You think you hate it, but you will love it. Now, about most things... I've come to learn that's true, except for kale. Now, but grace comes in and says, you will not eat this. You, and look, you have to stop being a couch potato. You have to get up off the couch. You have to move. You have to work. You have to lift. You have to run. You have to walk. You have to do all these things. That's basically what Titus 2 says. Grace comes in, bringing a salvation that isn't just a we'll see you there salvation, it's I'll see you in just a minute when we start the work. Training us to renounce ungodliness. Training us to renounce worldly passions. You can't eat that anymore. You need to do this. Teaching us to live godly lives in the present age. We receive God's grace in vain truly when we don't strive to grow in godliness. Grace is meant to empower and strengthen and help us to change. When we are, I mean, God has said, work out your own salvation. We are to be active. We are to choose to obey and choose not to disobey. We are to choose what is right and avoid what is wrong. We are to abhor what is evil and love what is good. We are to put off and we are to put on. And the only way we can do any of that is as the grace of God comes along and strengthens us. But you must do it. You must. There's no grace in disobedience. When we don't strive, when we're apathetic to our ungodliness, when we just accept worldly passions as a part of life, I mean, after all, nobody's perfect. Friends, if we find ourselves shrugging our shoulders often and just saying, hey, nobody's perfect, that's a sure sign the grace of God's been received in vain. But I'm not sure that's what Paul means either. It's true, but I'm not sure that that's what Paul means either. Here's what I think Paul means. I think receiving the grace of God in vain is failing to reconcile. Now, I read six to eight commentaries on this. Not because I read six to eight commentaries every week. But I will tell you that those six to eight commentaries and whatever else I found online were all over the map here. All over the map on what it means to not receive the grace of God in vain. And I will also tell you, with fear and trembling, none of them said what I'm saying. One teacher once said, when you find yourself at odds with a commentary, you may just be on the right road. So I'm taking his words as my guide. But let me tell you how I got there, okay? 
I want you to hear this. What I believe he's saying to them is that receiving the message of grace that reconciles them to God will mean widening their hearts to him. Follow the logic. Verse 1, don't receive the grace of God in vain. Verse 3, we've put no obstacles in anyone's way. That is, we put no obstacle in the way of anyone receiving the grace of God as it is. Receive it fully. And then he, he goes through his litany of uh, qualifications, which we'll get to. And then in verse 12, and then in verse 11, he says, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. In other words, we have exhibited our half of the relationship. We have opened our mouths with the gospel, with truth. We have opened ourselves. It's like Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, we didn't just share the gospel, we shared our lives with you. And then he says, I'm speaking as ch- to you as children. Open your hearts also. But if you see what he says in verse 12, he says, you are not restricted by us. The only thing restricting you is you and your affections. That sounds a whole lot like we haven't put any obstacles in anyone's way. And so I believe that what Paul is driving at is he's driving a direct line from reconciliation with God to reconciliation with one another, to reconciliation with Him. Failing to do that would be vanity. The grace of God intends for us to live in reconciled relationships. And when we do not pursue it, when we do not seek it, we are not walking in step with the gospel. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how silly it is for me to walk around and proclaim the reconciliation that God has made available in Christ, that God reconciles the world to Himself? Be reconciled to God. And uh, I live in complete conflict, and I'm okay with it with every Christian around me. It's completely out of step. Well, you know what the world tells us, right? I mean, somebody bugs you. You just cut them out of your life. You don't need that kind of problem. Well, if God makes everything work together for my good, then apparently I need that problem. Can you imagine how patient God is with us? Can you imagine how many times... If, it, I mean, how many times someone else would look at us and just say, I am not putting up with Toby anymore. That's it. And yet God doesn't. God perseveres with us. God clings to us. God holds us by His grace. God keeps us. How dare we treat relationships differently? In Matthew 18, there's this picture of us being forgiven a a debt we could never, never, never repay. 10,000 talent debt. Unimaginable debt. Millions in debt. But then being upset. Because you owe me five dollars. And I'm going to hold it over you until the day you die. Jesus says those are not the words of one who is forgiven. We have to forgive from the heart. God gives us the grace, the power, the strength, the help to make right what's wrong. To do anything else is to receive the grace of God in vain. To think, oh, that's a nice idea. We, we should just all hold hands and sing songs, and that's just wonderful. That's just wonderful. But I'm just not going to worry about it. I mean, that'll happen in heaven, but we don't need to worry about that here. No, 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 no. God's grace that reconciles us to God himself is meant to drive us 
to fight for, because sometimes, quite frankly, it is just a fight. It's often a fight just against my own sinful self, because what I'd like to do is hold it against you for the rest of your life. What I'd like to do is teach you a lesson. What I'd like to do is just show you how bad your debt really hurt me. But that's not what grace does. If we look to Jesus, grace takes the pain and releases the liability. That's what God has done for you and for me. Don't receive His grace in vain. Don't repay evil for evil. Overcome evil with good. Romans chapter 12. So Paul first says, receive God's grace. Secondly, he says, examine our lives. Examine our lives. He says, um, verse 3 and 4, We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Now, hit the pause button because last week he says, we're not commending ourselves to you again. And here he says, we're commending ourselves. What's that all about? Is Paul, did Paul set down the pen and he had a two-week vacation and he came back and he decided, well, maybe we should commend ourselves? No, what's happened is the way that he was talking about commending in chapter 5 was commending in a worldly way, commending with human, human standards, human commendation. Here, he's just talking about the fact, like he said in chapter 3, verse 2, that God makes us sufficient. We're commended by the fact that God's grace has worked through us in you. He's pointing to God for his condemnation, not really seeking to exalt himself. And this list is quite daunting, isn't it? I mean, listen to this. As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. By great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown yet are well known, as dying and yet behold we live as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Now, we'll only take 10 minutes on every word uh, that we... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Some of you are bracing yourself. Is there a seatbelt in this pew? Anyway, um, but I think all of this can be summed up by basically saying Paul has been Christ-like. It is his Christ-likeness that commends him. Isn't it interesting what he starts with? He starts with his suffering, Christ-like in his suffering. None of you, if you were putting together a resume tomorrow, to, to, uh, you were sitting down in an interview for a new job, you'd lead with all the things that went wrong in the last job. You say, well, I got yelled at a lot. Uh, people often confused me. Was locked out of my office for several weeks. Uh, they haven't. I I only know how to use Windows 95, you know, and so things are just really strange over there. I I and I'm, I'm I just I just was beat up over there. How much will this pay? <laughs> and yet that's where he leads. Great endurance. Why? Because it was a mark of the Lord Jesus Christ who endured. The second group we can put in, he's Christ-like, in character. It starts in verse 6. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. In other words... Paul's basically saying, hey, you remember that part in 1 Peter chapter 2 where it says that Jesus was reviled and he didn't revile in return, where he was threatened and he didn't speak violence, that he just kept entrusting himself to God who judges justly? 
Paul's saying that's been our pattern. Purity, knowledge, truthful speech, kindness, the Holy Spirit. Weapons of righteousness. I mean, righteousness has been what we've taken up as the very things to gain ground here. So he's been Christ-like in suffering, Christ-like in character, and then quite frankly, he's been Christ-like in the reception that he's received. He says in verse 8, through honor and dishonor, slander and praise. I mean, different responses from different people. You read the Gospels and you see that clearly, don't you? You read the book of Acts and you see that Paul goes into a place and he preaches the gospel. Some want to ask him questions. Some want to kill him and some believe. The way that Jesus was received is the way he's received. And that's exactly what Jesus said, isn't it? When he sent out the twelve, he said, Listen, if they will receive you, then they receive me in Matthew chapter 10. And in John chapter 15, he says, If the world hates you, it first hated me. In the rest of verses 8 to 10, basically Paul says things are not what they seem. We're treated as imposters, but we're true. It seems we're unknown, and yet to the Lord we are very well known. It seems we're dying, but we live. All we're facing is punishment, but guess what? We're not dead yet. We always seem to look sorrowful, but do you know we rejoice in the Lord always? And again, I will say it, rejoice. We got nothing in this world, but we are making other people rich in heaven. It may seem that we have nothing, but friends, we have Jesus. We have everything. Things are not quite as they seem. And that was actually the case for the false teachers as well. The opposite was true. In chapter 11, Paul writes this, Such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond with their deeds. I mean, Paul wants the Corinthians to see those men for who they really are and to see him for who he really is. The false apostles may look great, but they are devious and they are devilish. And I may not look like much of nothing. And in my own eyes, I don't even count my life worth anything. But I'm following Jesus, and you can see that in my suffering, and you can see that in character, and you can see it in the way people receive me. And the context for all of this is verses 3 and 4. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found in our ministry, but as servants of God we commend. In other words, Paul is saying their Christ-likeness is not an obstacle to anybody. Can I just tell you, the opposite is true. There is a way that we can live that will put obstacles in the way of other people. This is why Paul tells fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. You want to put a giant obstacle in front of your between your children and Jesus Christ? Keep provoking them to anger. Well, he always talks about how immorality is what's wrong with this country and how we need to get back to the Lord. But have you ever noticed all the crude jokes he makes? She tells me that Jesus will change my life and give me peace and joy. But the only thing I ever hear out of her is complaining and worry and anxiety. He talks about the sanctity of marriage, but he seems to flirt nonstop when we're on business trips. Brothers and sisters, we need to be Christ-like in our suffering, Christ-like in our character. And if we do that, we will be Christ-like in the way that we are responded to by the world. You see, we can either make it hard to accept the gospel we share by putting up obstacles, or we can make it hard to ignore it. That's the decision for you. 
You will either live your life in such a way that you will make it hard for others to accept the gospel you preach, or you will live your life in such a way that you will make it hard for people to ignore the gospel that you preach. One or the other. Which one will it be? How will you live? Paul says, don't receive God's grace in vain. God's grace is meant not just to reconcile you to God, but to to one another, to me. Examine our lives. We don't just bear the message of Christ. We bear the marks of Christ, the marks of a genuine Christian. And with all that hanging in the air, then Paul lays it all on the line. We've spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. We've said everything there is to say. We couldn't possibly love you more. Nothing is stopping you from reestablishing right relationship. So open your hearts. This is what the grace of God does, isn't it? The grace of God opened our heart first to the gospel which we believe and opened our heart to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. But the, but the grace of God continues to open our heart. It opens our heart to one another so that as Paul prays for the Thessalonians, our love may abound more and more. God's grace opens our hearts so that we confess our sin to one another. God's grace opens our hearts so that we are more freely forgiving of one another. God's grace opens our heart to renew and restore relationships with one another. Reconciliation with God should lead to reconciliation with God's people. Our relationship with God and our relationship with other people are intimately connected. And God's grace gives us the ability to do both. God's grace reconciles us to Him and to others. Now, I've told this story before, but it really bears repeating in this text. The main reason that Susan and I moved back to Marion, Indiana in 2008 was because a church that I had formerly served there had split. People were at odds over a number of issues. And people from both sides of this conflict kept calling me. I was in Nashville, Tennessee. I wasn't even in town. In Nashville, Tennessee, asking what they ought to do. And Susan and I felt compelled that reconciliation was important enough that we ought to leave and go back, not knowing where I would work. We had a house that we couldn't sell, so we knew where we would live, but we had no idea how we would actually pay for life. But we would go back and we would have conversations with people, urging them to reconcile. And I have a friend named Gary there. I love him. I love him dearly. And I remember standing there. We were watching his, son, his grandson play soccer. And we were leaning up against the fence outside the soccer field. And I'm talking to him about all of this. And he says, Toby, I know what the Bible says about reconciliation. But you have to live in the real world. I think it's actually easy to gasp at that sitting here among ourselves, but I wonder how well that would reflect your own thoughts about reconciliation. Look, I know, I know we need, I know we ought to reconcile, but you just need to live in the real world. What does your approach to relationships reveal about God's grace in your life? Have you received God's grace in vain, or is it working to its rightful end that we pursue any time there is rupture in a relationship to be right with one another? I mean, if you hear this message today and you think, yeah, I hear all that. That's nice. I took the notes. It's all nice and well and good, but you really have to live in the real world. And I think the Lord would say to you, Those aren't words my grace produces. My grace enables reconciliation in the real world. Don't receive it in vain. Open your heart 
why reconciliation with God should lead us to reconciliation with God's people. Let's pray. Our Father, we bow before you thankful for your word, thankful that it speaks to our lives, to what it means to live godly lives in this world. We are thankful today for the reconciliation we have in Jesus Christ. We are thankful that you are not counting our sins against us, but you counted them against him. And that by your grace, we have been justified and that we stand right with you. And Lord, we pray once again for those who may be among us who are not right with you. Lord, I pray they would not be able to hear the good news that Jesus has died and rose again, that we might be right with you, that they could not hear that and just dismiss it. We pray that by your Spirit's power, they would receive the grace of God to be reconciled with you. We do want to be a people in whom the grace of God is clearly at work, teaching us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, teaching us to live upright and peaceful and godly lives. And so we do ask for that. And in light of what you have said here in your word, we ask, Lord, that you would train us to be a reconciling people. That you would help us to renounce bitterness, renounce unforgiveness, renounce grudges, renounce slander and malice. That we would put away all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander along with all malice. And instead that we would be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as you have forgiven us in Jesus. Help us to live reconciled lives, lives that keep in step with the gospel of reconciliation. And even as we pray today, Lord, if, as you have brought circumstances or relationships to our minds that are unresolved, Lord, Give us grace and courage and compassion to not do anything until we've made it right, until we've done everything that we can so far as it depends on us to live at peace with all people. And we ask it all in the name of the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.